Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowling. gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel of Luke, the 24th chapter. Now, speaking of the day of the resurrection. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked, and they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked, with, walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, this is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And then he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, 
it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon Peter. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. I want to tell you today about people who were not raised in church. And I'm going to be your example. As a boy, my family stayed away from church. We attended church a couple of times when I was under six years old. I remember sitting in a Sunday school class at Long Reach a couple of, a couple of times, coloring shapes. I remember a discussion about dinosaurs not being real. The next time we attended church, I was a senior in high school. The cooling tower had fallen at Willow Island. And we attended St. Mary's United Methodist for six straight weeks. My parents, who understood Christianity, just figured that I'd get it. But I didn't get it. And so when I entered college, I was largely ignorant of Christian ideas. The piece of scripture I knew best was the last words of David. It was a musical piece our high school choir sang at graduation. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds as the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after rain. That was my scripture. Now I'd tried reading the Bible, the big coffee table King James Bible that we had. I'd mostly read parts of Revelation, which was filled with wild imagery. And a bit of Genesis about the creation and the flood, both of which were dubious to me because they appeared to conflict with everything I was reading and being taught in school. And I read a lot, particularly about science and science fiction. Now socially, all I knew was that a bunch of Christians in Kanawha County had started complaining about evolution in textbooks back there in the 1970s, and I seemed to remember hearing about some shots being fired. I had a friend who tried to explain God to me. He said, she said, God is like a good father. But does God exist, I asked. You just need to have faith. But I didn't have faith. I didn't have any faith. In fact, I really didn't understand a bunch of words we commonly use around church. Words like faith and grace and salvation. I didn't have any real idea of what the Ten Commandments were, except you probably shouldn't steal or murder. I'd heard the golden rule, but I wasn't quite sure what it meant. And I remember looking up John 3.16 one afternoon after seeing it flashed on yet another televised football game. But it sure didn't make any sense to me. I think I was like a lot of people, particularly these days. I'd listened to a recording of Jesus Christ Superstar a few times, and I memorized almost all the songs. I knew that the fact our middle school band had played the introduction to the theme of the movie, that had become grounds for our assistant band director to be fired. And after sitting in those pews for six weeks my senior year, I figured out that most hymns follow classical chord progressions since I was taking a music theory class at the same time. You see, I wasn't getting it. Because of that class and my interest in music, when I went to WVU, I joined the choir. And there I sang many pieces which had a Christian basis, pieces like Mozart's Requiem, which is a funeral piece in Latin, 
And other pieces like Robert Shaw's arrangement of Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. But they were just musical pieces to me. There really wasn't anything that hit my heart. Yet I lied awake at night wondering what happened when we die. For I never connected Jesus and Christianity and God together with life eternal and a death upon the cross. And so I just lied awake Wondering and pondering, fearful of a death that might come to me one day. What should I do? What could I do about this? And another ten years went by before I began to understand these things. Sandra and I had been married for a few years. We moved to Atlanta and wanted to help our daughters make some good friends. The boys next door were polite and clean cut. I worked with the father, and so I was open to attending church with them when invited so our daughter could make some good our daughters could make good friends. And it was there that I was hooked by a teaching pastor by the name of Doug McIntosh. It was there I believed and was baptized in a swimming pool one one November day. And so I dove into theology. We visited and attended various churches of various kinds. We had friends that went to many different churches. I learned that most of the arguments around town were over what it took for salvation. Was it a simple belief? Did you need to be baptized? What baptisms were valid? How did the promise to be in paradise with Jesus that he made to the thief on the cross fit in? What did it mean to believe What belief was right and what would keep you from heaven? Did you need to attend church? What sins could keep you from heaven? Could you lose your salvation and how? What did communion mean? And so over the next 15 years, we attended or visited a wide variety of churches, Reformed, Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, Christian Church, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Presbyterian, United Church of Christ, Congregational, Lutheran, Methodist, Assemblies of God, Wesleyan. We even went to a tiny offshoot of the Nazarene Church. We visited a Palestinian Maronite Catholic Church in Atlanta and also were friends with a group of Bengali Muslims and attended one of their services. We went to Charleston for our son's Jewish friend's bar mitzvah. I taught at Parkersburg Catholic and at Ohio Valley University. That won't give you a whiplash. Sandra and I had deep discussions with most of the pastors and the priests and the rabbi. And before we were married, Sandra had also attended free will and missionary Baptist churches So she was able to to talk with me about those. And so we learned a lot over the years. Finally, we settled on the Methodist Church, despite a reputation for being liberal, because a couple of good friends had begun attending. And the Methodist Church happened, of course, to be the church that I'd attended in high school for six weeks. So we went to First United Methodist in Williamstown. We settled on it, though, partly because Methodist theology teaches that we aren't finished when we believe and are baptized. There is left much more to learn and to do. After the resurrection, a couple of interesting things happened. The rumors that the women had seen Jesus were spreading around Jerusalem that Sunday when Cleopas and his friend began to head back to Galilee. They planned to walk to the village of Emmaus, about six or seven miles from Jerusalem, an easy walk in those days. They, pl- they 
started on the walk and a third man joined them on the road and they had a great discussion about what had happened that week with Jesus of Nazareth, how he taught, how they thought he'd be the Messiah, but also how he was executed. But they also mentioned the rumors they heard. And then the third man began to speak with them about how this was all predicted by scripture. And an excitement began to burn in the hearts of the two men as the third man spoke to them about how all of this was predicted in Scripture, how the Messiah must suffer and die and rise again before the world would be changed. They approached the village late that afternoon, and the man indicated that he had planned to go further, but they insisted that he join them for dinner. And so he blessed and broke the bread. And at that point, they finally saw that he was indeed Jesus, and then he vanished. And Cleopas and his friend ran back to Jerusalem to tell the core disciples, finding out when they got there that Jesus had appeared to Simon Peter. They arrived breathlessly just before Jesus suddenly appeared to them all in that upper room and breathed the eternal Holy breath of the Holy Spirit upon them, giving them the power to forgive sins and allowing them to hear directly from God through that Spirit. And 50 days later, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the assembled 120 believers, once again in that upper room on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up with the 11 and spoke to the crowd. And this is the last part of that speech. Peter said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Can you imagine realizing your mistake if you were in the crowd that day? We've all heard the story of the new pastor who wears grungy clothes and sneaks into the church he'll be preaching at to see how they treat visitors. He comes in in dirty blue jeans and a torn t-shirt with unwashed hair, no deodorant, and sits down. And then somewhere in the midst of the service... After everyone has either ignored him or moved away from him or treated him poorly, he's introduced as a new pastor and the crowd is ashamed. Now imagine that you've just found out that you'd been part of a crowd that had chanted for the death of the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus, a little over a month earlier. These people were aghast at what they'd done. And so they began asking Peter, what shall we do? How do they get right with God? What shall they do to make things up? Well, Peter doesn't give them a long, detailed theological argument. He doesn't delve into the thief on the cross who went to heaven with Jesus that day. He doesn't worry about whether there's a creek or a swimming pool around. He doesn't care whether they'll sprinkle water with a seashell or a hand or use a pitcher to pour the water over someone. Peter doesn't put an age limit on who can participate or ask a series of detailed questions about what people believe, what they understand, what sins they've committed in the past few days. He simply says, when they ask him, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. These people had accepted what Peter had told them, that Jesus was sent from God. They already believed So they just needed to simply repent, to rethink their relationship with God and about who Jesus was and be baptized. What was in it for them? First, there was the implied promise that this is what would get them right with God. But there was also something else. Peter said, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, for all whom the Lord our God will call. It wasn't just for these men and women standing there. It was for them and their children and for all who are far off, including us. Perhaps the greatest thing about learning to follow the teachings of Jesus is that it's so simple to get started. Accept that Jesus is sent from God, begin to change our ways with his help, and get baptized. Believe, repent, and be baptized puts us on the path. As John Wesley said, this is the ordinary way, the most common way to salvation. There are exceptions. We can't tie God's hands. But instead of worrying about the exceptions, we should concentrate on the ordinary way. Believe, repent, and be baptized puts us on the holy path of salvation. But in so many churches, belief, repentance, and baptism is seen as the end. In these churches, people arrive every Sunday to be reminded that they're safe from death and perhaps be encouraged to bring someone to walk through the gateways of belief repentance and baptism and then one day we die and we're all in the arms of Jesus if only it were so it's like getting a social security card when you get it or your parents get it for you one day that will get you your retirement checks fill out the paperwork check the boxes once and you're set for eternal life if we have that simple set of beliefs for example If we can point to a day and time when we first believed that Jesus was wiser and more powerful than we were, and we accepted Jesus as ruler of our lives, we invited Jesus into our hearts, we look back with joy and say, that was when I was saved, and once saved, always saved. Yet if we think about this carefully, there's something missing with this simple, easy formula. For it doesn't explain why a month or a year, or a decade later, we're still hurting other people. We're still hurting ourselves. We're still sinning against God. There is something we are missing with the simple idea of believe, repent, and be baptized. It's like the young adult who received his first paycheck and came to my father, who was his supervisor. Look at my check. What is this FICA deduction? I didn't ask them to take that money out. You mean that one day we have to work and contribute taxes to get our Social Security checks? Do you mean there's something more to a Christian life than than just accepting Jesus into our hearts as a child and being baptized? Some people say, if a person who has been saved commits a sin that, well, they were never saved in the first place. It was all fake. They were lying to themselves. They were wrong. But if that's so, then how do we know that anyone is saved? And more importantly, how do we know that we are saved and headed to heaven? Could we be lying to ourselves? Do we need to be saved again, baptized again and again, every time we mess up life? And are we deluding ourselves when we say that we do not sin? Where is our certainty? Where is that solid rock to stand upon? Where is our assurance that Jesus and ourselves will be together throughout eternity? At the other extreme, there are 
other people who say they must confess their sins and be resaved every week, perhaps even every day, and they live in constant fear that they will die suddenly with an unconfessed sin, or look up one day while walking down the street as a proverbial piano falls on them and involuntarily sin by saying something unholy. Where is their assurance? And then there are the people who have recognized that salvation through belief, repentance, and baptism is wonderful. This is a great thing that God has done for us. But after sitting in church for months or years or decades, one day they recognize that they are very comfortable. And it doesn't seem like they're growing anymore. They feel great. They feel happy. They feel satisfied with their lives when they walk out of church every Sunday. But something is bothering them because they realize one day that they haven't been challenged to do anything more than put money in the offering plate, maybe take their turn in the nursery every quarter, help on a couple projects every year, and take their turn in various ministries and offices, and they've done that. But nothing they are being taught is challenging them to change their personal behavior or their attitudes in any way. They realize that they're much the same in beliefs and actions as they were five or ten years ago, and they realize that they not, have not really grown any closer to Jesus over that time. Church has become safe and comforting and feels like a warm blanket that we sleep in every Sunday. Hmm. And one day they wake up and say, isn't there more to Christianity than this? Isn't there more to Christianity than belief and repentance and salvation and baptism? And the answer is yes. There is much more to Christianity, and it's waiting for you. Belief, repentance, salvation, and baptism is a safe place to start from, and it's necessary. Just like an army needs a safe set of barracks, or a Navy fighter jet needs a secure carrier to come home to, or a ship needs a well-protected home port to return to, or the Air Force needs a smooth, well-maintained runway to land on, Christians need that safety and assurance of that deep belief that repentance from sin and baptism to come back to every day and to start from it every morning. We need to know that at the end of everything, we go home with Jesus. Most of us know that. Yet the army does not stay forever in the barracks. That's not its purpose. The Navy's fighter jets do not just sit on the carrier, and ships don't just languish at anchor in port. Air Force planes don't sit on the, in the hangars at the ends of the runways. All of them go forth to accomplish their missions, and Christians are to do the same. We're to use our safe and assured salvation as a basis for going forth to change the world, for not having fear, and to be changed, to become more like Jesus, kind, generous friends to all, and to be filled with the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We are to go forward without fear to change ourselves and the world through our belief in Jesus. Christianity is simple to begin with. But Christianity is also something very deep and powerful. For there is such a thing as a path of holiness following Jesus on that path. And that path involves repentance, yes, learning new ways of thinking and behaving about many, many things such as God, who Jesus is, how to deal with our sinful selves and 
how to deal with other people. We're to learn what Jesus asked of each of us, how we must change to be more like him, what we must do in sacrifice to follow his example, and what God's personal mission is for each of us. There's so much to learn that we can learn new deep insights every week for the rest of our lives and still keep learning and growing more holy. The road to holiness is the road to following Jesus along that road. It's a long road for Jesus is always ahead of us. He's always going around the next bend or over the next hill. We're always trying to catch up. But he's always there, always there ahead of us, far ahead of us on the holiness path. You know, it's always tempting to stop when we see a path stretching far beyond us. And from time to time, we all need to rest. But if we rest for too long, we'll stop walking the path. Our knees will ache. Our joints will freeze. And we'll settle down to live and die in that place, that comfortable place, never knowing what beautiful sights we could find over the next hill or around the next bend. For we must keep climbing the path of holiness. For just like the three men who walked to Emmaus and were ready, and the two of them were ready to stop for the evening, Jesus is always ready and willing to go farther than we're willing to go. But he does not want to sit still with us. And he'll leave us behind. For he's ready to go further than we're willing to go. Yet, you know, if we walk with him, he'll keep walking with us. And our hearts will burn with joy as he keeps speaking to us through the Holy Spirit. Let's keep going. Let's get back up and keep walking for the really good stuff is yet to come. You know, at Mouth of Seneca, over in the West Virginia mountains, there's a real-life path that we can take. It leads across a creek and through a lowland, and then it begins to climb. That path goes up past hundreds of blooming rhododendron bushes under dark, green, quiet, tall trees who've shed leaves and needles over many past years, up past a little brook that, that sings like, a, like tiny bells in the dim light under those tall trees. There are rocks to sit upon, and there's dead logs to walk over. It's not an easy path, but it's not impossible. You don't need to be an expert hiker to travel it if you pace yourself. It winds up and up and up, and then it gets a bit easier as you follow a ridgeline up and around. And then suddenly, just when many people are feeling that it's time to give up because it's getting hot and there's flies buzzing around and the path seems to go up forever, then suddenly you're over a little ridge and you walk downward about five feet and forward around the bend and there you are standing at the top of Seneca Rocks. For you've come in the back way and you can see over 900 feet down into the valley. You can see where your car or bus is parked and it looks like a matchbox vehicle. And you can see several miles to the mountain on the other side of the valley. And it's one of the most beautiful sights that you'll ever see. The wind is sweet because there's the perfume of the rhododendrons and the pines. When I was in college, well before the visitor center was completed, the WBU choir traveled to perform in Franklin and other places, and we stopped to climb Seneca Rocks using that backside pathway. And then when we'd all gathered on top, we sang, Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air. And then when we finished, it echoed off the mountain. 
That was a beautiful, wonderful day. And someday, those who climb the path of holiness will see beauty far beyond that of rhododendrons in bloom. You'll hear sounds far sweeter than the sound of tinkling brooks. You'll experience stillness and peace far quieter than a forest-covered lane of fallen leaves. For we shall see beyond the rocks and see the entirety of what God has made and listen to the thunder of God's voice bounce off the far mountains. While we breathe in the fragrance of Jesus' holy breath and see his wonderful city of New Jerusalem and the one who stands beside us is the most beautiful of all sights. Keep walking the holy path. Keep climbing over all the obstacles. Following Jesus and seeking God. Sometimes the path is narrow, but just keep following him. And find God's beauty and the holiness around you in this life and even more in the next. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.